almost feel a moral obligation to bring out the best in people, right? One of the things that resonates with me from Harry Kramer is he says, look, you have a moral obligation to tell people where they stand and where they're going in the organization. Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to The Leadership Sessions, a podcast series of conversations with guests from around the world, hosted by TPC Leadership. In this series, we discuss how leadership is transforming. We talk with inspirational guests who are willing to share their personal stories and learnings with us. What are their strategies and tactics to thrive in these uncertain times and beyond? We kicked off the series with an interview between TPC partners Annalika Jensen and Tom van Dijk. Today, Tom welcomes Brandon Strong, Head of Finance at Google. Brandon, welcome. Great to have you. We haven't met yet in person, so very glad to have you. Yeah, Tom, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to, to discussing. Would you mind maybe as a start telling us a little bit more about yourself as an introduction to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. Um, on the personal side, uh, I'm born and raised in the U.S., uh, Southern California, so Los Angeles. Uh, never lived for uh, outside of the U.S. for an extended period of time, but have definitely moved around the U.S. quite a bit. On the personal side, was raised in Southern California by a single mother, did most of my schooling in Los Angeles as well. Went to the University of Southern California for undergrad and then went to Northwestern University for my MBA. Professionally, most of my career has been spent in finance and strategy. So I started my career at a big four audit company, spent a few years at a major mall company uh, as well, also doing finance. Uh, and then post MBA, spent five years at Walmart. Most of that time was in supply chain, finance and strategy, spent a little bit of time doing corporate strategy. And for the last two and a half years, I've been at Google where I lead the finance team for the customer support org of Google. Cool. What does that mean like practically on a day-to-day? What's your role? What do you feel responsible for at Google? Yeah, the way that I describe my job is really I we help our professional uh, services uh, org. We help us scale, you know, and and grow in a sustainable way. So we really help inform investment decisions. We uh, look at operational metrics. We make sure that we're just working as efficiently as possible and we're making the right investment decisions. We'll be talking about leadership and high-performing teams today. Out of curiosity, personally speaking, who was a great mentor or leader you have had the pleasure of working with in your life? Yeah, you know, Tom, one of the things I always tell people is most of my mentors don't actually know that they've been my mentors, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I really believe in continuous learning. And so I really, uh, as I've met people, just started to adopt and, and learn from them. So one of the great mentors that I would say has really been an influence over me is uh, is Harry Kramer. Harry Kramer is the former CEO of Baxter. And uh, he's now a business school professor at Northwestern, where I did my MBA. And, you know, when you think about people who have made great influence in great influences in your life, a lot of it has to deal with timing as well. And so when I think about to where I was during business school, I was at a point personally, professionally, where I was sort of figuring out who I am, the type of person that I want to be, the type of leader that I wanted to be. And uh, Harry Kramer t- uh, teaches a class. Um, it's based on leadership. And his class is really what sparked my interest in leadership. So uh, in Harry Kramer, I saw elements of the type of leader that I wanted to be. So for example, you know, he's very big on anchoring leadership and values. He's actually wrote a book called Values to Action, which I always recommend to people. Uh, And secondly, he lets faith inform his leadership, which for me, faith is a a big part of my life as well. Uh, And so just learning from Harry Kramer, seeing how he led, seeing how it actually led to him being successful and making an impact, that was really uh, very impactful for me in my life. Uh, I still quote Harry Kramer almost a decade after business school, after taking his class. So he is one person who I would say has really been a mentor for me, um, you know, on the professional side. Okay. 
Thank you. And you're quoting him today as well. So that's cool. He'll be happy. Yes. You say, you say faith. Is this something you can elaborate on a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I, uh, you know, when I think about the role that faith plays in, uh, in leadership, you know, it, it, faith is really all about people, right? Um, you know, it's about treating people as you want it to be treated. Um, and so that's, that, that really is how, is what guides my approach towards people management, uh, right? I almost feel a moral obligation to bring out the best in people, right? Uh, one of the things that resonates with me from Harry Kramer is he says, look, you have a moral obligation to tell people where they stand and where they're going in the organization. And I really like that framing because it really connects your professional to your personal. Um, for me, it's very hard to separate the two. Uh, and so that's really what it comes down to. It, it really informs my uh, how I view people, my approach to people, and the obligation that I feel to make sure that they reach their, their potential. Cool. Just just as a side note, then picking up on what you just said, how do you make sure that other people also have this moral obligation towards you? Because you have this, you say that you have this moral obligation towards your teams and your people, but how to ensure in an organization that somebody does that for you? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, you know, I think what it comes down to, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about high performance teams, but uh, it all comes down to setting a very clear expectation and setting a vision. So, uh, as a part of my leadership, you know, when I do have a team, I always set a vision of who of who it is that we want to be. Uh, one of which is about developing people and making sure that people leave our team better than when they came. And so, if you get people to buy into the vision, while it's not explicitly hey faith related, I think most people think believe that that's a good thing, right? Uh, you always want to make people better. Uh, and so, I think just connecting to the vision of the team uh, and, and then giving them ownership over that vision. Um, to me, that, that, that really kind of instills with them the ownership of that. Uh, it instills the commitment and the buy-in to the vision. Okay, cool. I, li I like the fact that you use the word ownership because it's, it's for me something that I often assimilate with leadership. It's you can take ownership at any level in an organization. Brandon, what for you makes a high-performing team? We've spoken about it already, but but how would you describe it? When I think about high-performing teams, Tom, uh, really it all comes down to impact for me. Uh, and when I think about impact, it's both on the business and the people side. Um, high-performing teams generally make things better better than they were. So, you know, they leave their mark. They came in, something was in one state. They make things better. Uh, they get things done. They influence the perspective of the orgs. Uh, they drive decisions. So that's really, I think, the, the key word to me is it comes down to impact. You know, I always include people in that because I think sometimes when we think about high performance teams, we only stick to business impact. And uh, what I've seen quite a bit over the course of my career is uh, I've seen a by any means necessary approach where people do anything they can to drive business results. But you think about the impact on people, oftentimes people are burnt out, they're disengaged, they're, they're, they're not motivated. There's essentially a trail of bodies behind that path to success. Uh, to me, I don't define success that way. So when I think about high-performing teams, not only are you delivering business results, but people are leaving your team better than when they came. Okay, so in a way you're saying you'll recognize a high-performing team when you see it. But then the question is, how do you create one? And I'd love to make a little parenthesis here. A couple of years back, I um, I first read about Google's Project Aristotle. Uh, more on that on rework.withgoogle.com, where you can read about the, the internal research project that was done at Google. Uh, and now I have the privilege of speaking with somebody on the inside. I was fascinated by the fact that the number one sort of ingredient that was required to lead to high-performing teams was not ability or, or skill set, but psychological safety. Can you say a little bit more about it? So how do you create a high-performing team culture and how can you relate it to your own experience at Google related to this uh, project Aristotle? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, psychological safety is something we talk quite a bit about at Google. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, development courses that you can take. Um, one of the things that's always uh, recommended is basically how to become a high-performing manager uh, and the aspects, elements of a high-performing team. And you're right, pro- psychological safety is the number one thing. When you think about what psychological safety means and why it's important, psychological safety really gives people the freedom to challenge, the freedom to question, uh, and the freedom to share their ideas without fear of retribution. If you think about really what uh, what Google stands for, and this is one of the things I really appreciate most about it, is it's really a place where the best idea wins. And in order for the best idea to win, people have to feel comfortable sharing their idea. They have to feel comfortable challenging or telling their manager or their peers, hey, actually, there might be a different perspective on this. Uh, and so psychological safety, the way that it, it it comes to life to me on the teams is, is really it centers on trust. It centers on trust that, um, hey, uh, really, it's about the best idea. Uh, there's nothing else that's really going to come in the way of that. You're receptive to it. I'm going to be listened to. Um, even if you don't agree with my idea, at least I'm going to be heard out and we can have some healthy debate around it. So to me, that aspect of psych- psych- psychological safety and trust is critically important because there is no way you can get to the best ideas, the best solutions without that without that element. So to me, that is definitely the most important thing. As I mentioned, we talk quite a bit about it at Google. Uh, I would say number two is having a clear vision. What I found in my career and especially at Google is it's really important for people to know where you're taking them. People want to know where they're going, what our purpose is, what's unique about us, why are we here? Uh, if you can set that very clear vision, again, I go back to the the motivating people uh, and giving them ownership and empowering them to take control of the culture. A very clear vision is incredibly important. People have to know where they're going and why. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, and I think this goes along with psychological safety, is uh, I think building high-performance teams um, what you'll find in high performance teams is real time feedback, right? Um, I worked for a, uh, the former CEO of Walmart US, Greg Foran used to always use a phrase called unvarnished truth, which I have actually stolen. And I now use that with all of my teams. And the whole notion behind that is I want to know the truth. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, if it's difficult, if it's criticism, if it's, if it's things to continue, I want to know the truth. Um, you guys may be familiar with a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. Um, and what I really like about both of those radical candor and the unvarnished truth theme is just the element of feedback is always welcomed. There's no way that people can reach their full potential unless they know where they stand, uh, telling them what they do well, things they should continue, but also letting them know where they can improve. So to me, it really comes down to those three things. I think those are the things that I focus on when building high performance teams, psychological safety, setting a clear vision, um, and having a culture of real-time feedback. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Brandon. On on this last piece of feedback, when we speak with our clients, this is Often something that's part of the briefing that we get is like, hey, dear TPC, we would love to create a a culture where feedback is accepted. Kind regards, client. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the question is always like, where to start? I mean, imagine you're landing in an organization where there is no feedback culture, where feedback is seen as hostile, as dangerous, Mm -hmm. where there is not, you know, the psychological safety. You as a, as a seasoned senior team, leader, where do you start? How do you install a feedback culture? Right, right. What I've seen, Tom, over the course of my career is people are generally open to feedback when there's a high element of trust. So generally, when um, when you see cultures that maybe feedback is not welcomed, the first question I ask is, well, what's the level of trust? And that's where it ties back to psychological safety. What I find is when people believe you have their best interests at heart, 
they are willing to listen to you. So I think as a leader, it's very important to be mindful of the cues that you send to your team. For example, uh, going back to psychological safety, if you come up with a potential solution or potential approach and your team disagrees, uh, if they challenge you and you get defensive and shut them down, um, that doesn't build trust. And that then makes it hard for you to have uh, an unvarnished, candid feedback culture. Uh, and so that's where I think it starts is to me, it starts with the cues that the leader, the leader sends to, to his or her team. Uh, you want to make sure that you're welcoming feedback, that you're open to ideas. Uh, even if you don't go with their ideas, they want to be heard. That generally sets the foundation for a feedback culture. I think without that, it is impossible to, to have that, that uh, unvarnished feedback culture. Great. You've mentioned three, right? The psychological safety, the setting of a vision and uh, a shared vision. And then three, there being a feedback culture. Would you say there are other common characteristics of high performing teams? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple more things come to mind. Uh, I think number one, uh, again, the lifeblood of any organization or any team is always people. Um, what that means to me is you always want to make sure you have the right people in the right roles, right? Uh, it's leadership is not only about getting the best people, but it's making sure that they work well together. And often that means that, you know, you're leveraging people's strengths to the best of their ability. So there is a little bit, I go back to that vision comment um, of just recognizing talent. Uh, if someone is not performing, to me, the question is always, are they in the right role? And is there a, a better role where we can better leverage their strengths? So I, I tend to find that high performing teams generally have the right people in the right roles. Um, I think they reward the right behaviors. Uh, again, going back to the unvarnished, um, uh, unvarnished feedback uh, and, and, and then the vision, one of the things that I think undermines credibility of a team is when you say you value you one thing, but then what you reward is different. So for example, if you say that you're a people first culture, uh, but you have a leader who, you know, maybe is not the best people leader or cuts people down, but then you promote that person, then questions start to abound. It's like, well, you set this vision, you said this was important, but your actions are saying something different. So I find that rewarding the right behaviors, being consistent with your message is very, very important. I think the third thing, uh, and I don't think enough teams focus on this, is ruthlessly prioritizing. When I look at a lot of the high performing teams that I've interacted with, they are not afraid to say no to things. Um, you know, there's always this temptation to try to do everything at once, but I think great teams and great leaders realize that they cannot be an A plus in everything. It's okay to be maybe a C in some areas if that means you can be an A plus in the most impactful areas. And so I think being comfortable with saying no uh, to me is, is another common characteristic of a high performing team. What I'm hearing, even though you didn't say it, Brandon, is something that comes back often in, in our conversations as well. It seems like we cannot overstress the importance of strong recruiting because once Absolutely. you have the right people on the bus, basically you can shuffle them around, you can help them reprioritize. What is the role of talent acquisition in order to build high-performing teams? Because you don't recruit teams, right? You recruit individuals. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, and that's where I think it comes back to the vision. When you have a very clear vision of where it is that you want to go, you then have a sense of what you need to get there. So one of the things we do with our team is we constantly have conversations around what skills are missing from our team. Um, what capabilities do we want to add that will be complementary to what we already have? When you do that, you can then identify, this is the type of profile, this is the type of experience that I want for this per for this role that I have open. Um, and then that allows you to give very clear guidance to recruiting to say, look, I want someone that has this particular skill uh, that is passionate about this particular category. So it helps you really identify first the best candidates. Once you get into the interview process, and we talk a lot about this as at Google as well, is you really want to rate people based on competencies and you don't want to eliminate good talent because uh, of some character, you know, some perceived character flaw. For example, you know, oftentimes what you'll hear is I want people that are go-getters and, you know, that are, that are loud uh, and that make their opinion known. Well, 
there's a half of the people in the world. I mean, I don't know if that's the actual statistic, but <laughs> a significant portion of people may be introverts, right? Uh, and so sometimes when you interview them, they may come off as more introverted. And at times that gets interpreted as, well, they can't actually do the job. When I think about it, that's actually letting noise distract away from the competencies. And so we talk a lot about Google, uh, about really focusing on can the person do the job based on the competencies. So when you have a very clear roadmap of where you want to go, you can identify what those competencies are. And then it's up to you and your interview team to eliminate any bias that may, um, that may lead you to making the wrong decision or eliminating a great candidate because of any preconceived notions or uh, existing bias. Brandon, with the COVID situation, with the pandemic uh, still not being over, uh, we've all mostly been working from home this past year or 18 months, working remotely, and it definitely hasn't been easy right. for most people. Right. In, in your experience, what's the effect of working from home and team performance? How did it shift your perspective on leading teams? Yeah, uh, absolutely. The pandemic, um, it's been a huge learning for us, uh, not only for me personally and for our team, but also for the rest of Google. What I can say is I don't think we have it figured out. Um, I think we've identified some areas of, um, you know, key things that we should keep in mind as we think about what things look like going forward. But I do think a lot of this will be an iterative process. Um, the world has just changed drastically over the past 12 months. Um, and I think that will continue probably over the next decade. Um, to me, I think there's a couple things that I've learned during this uh, work from home and COVID environment. I think uh, first is... I feel like I have a more a stronger appreciation for the connection between personal and professional. You know, I think um, before COVID, you know, most people did their best to really separate the two uh, and say, look, I've got my personal life. I've got my professional life. Well, during work from home, I think a lot of this bled together uh, and you really started to see how it's really difficult for people to be their best at work if they're struggling in their personal life. So for example, if they're taking on more stress because of, you know, sick family members, or uh, it could be childcare, um, you know, here in the US, we had a lot of racial unrest. That was causing people, I think, a lot of mental anxiety. Um, and, and it made it very difficult for people to bring their best selves to work. And so um, I think one of the big learnings is uh, for me and my team is how do we support People uh, that may be disproportionately impacted by whatever's going on in the world. How do we make sure to acknowledge, give them space, um, you know, to um, to express themselves? Um, how do we learn to support them better? I think that is a num that is one thing that has been really top of mind for me. Um, but I think. I now have a greater appreciation for the connection between those two, right? Uh, and so I always want to make sure people are, are doing okay in their personal life as much as is, uh, they're comfortable sharing. Um, but if there's anything that I can do to support, offer mental health days, for example, uh, offer no meeting days, tell people to take time off, just take care of what, whatever's going on in your family. Um, we companies and teams should really embrace that moving forward. Um, I think one of the other things, uh, Tom, that you said is, you know, I think the, the hybrid environment was sort of forced on people. And so we didn't have much time to prepare. Uh, and so I think it's shifted a lot of people's mindsets. Uh, and for me personally, um, what got you here won't get you there. I think that's kind of one of my one of my favorite quotes. There's actually a book by that title, which I would highly recommend uh, for folks. That's more in the context of personal career. But when I think about, for example, um, a Google or you know a Walmart or or Microsoft or any big company, you know these companies have decades of success. And with the world changing, I really do think we have to have a mindset of what got you here won't won't, won't get you there, right? So maybe before we had office centric cultures, uh, we had a strong belief that look, being in person is 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 really what's best for your career. But I think given what's going on, given how people have changed, given how the workforce is changing, I think we may need to adapt that mentality. Uh, and so I think embracing change as opposed to, um, you know, 
putting a stake in the ground and saying, look, this is how it's always been. This is how we're going to do it. Uh, I think that's really important. And that has been a huge learning for me as a team. The way that I manage now in the post-pandemic world in a remote environment cannot be the same as it was before. I totally hear you. Would you be able to give a like a concrete example of how you manage your team differently from, let's say, 18 months ago? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think... Um, Going back to sort of the personal connection, I think uh, the first thing for me is making sure that people have enough, making sure I'm setting people up for success so that um, so that they know where work ends and where their personal life begins. One of the big challenges that we noticed during the pandemic is um, people actually ended up working more. And you would think that with people not having to commute, well, maybe actually it's less time. I have more time with my family. What we ended up seeing is a lot of people actually replaced that with uh, that commute time with just more work. So meetings ended later. People were getting up earlier for meetings. Uh, and so there really start to be this really meeting overload. And so one thing that we've done differently is uh, we now have a relentless focus on well-being. So whenever my team meets, we have a quarterly offsite that we do. Well-being is always going to be a topic moving forward. Um, how do we manage that? What are some best tips that people can share? Um, you know, how are people, what have people learned? What are they doing differently? What can they share with other people? What are some activities that they've taken on? Um, the well-being conversation to me uh, is a part of almost every one-on-one that I have. And it's a part of every every major team meeting that we have as well. Uh, I think, uh, you know, number two, as I mentioned, is uh, having things like mental health days. Um, you know, so people should not feel afraid to say, look, I'm struggling this week, you know, or I'm struggling with what's going on with my family. Um, I need a day off. Uh, being okay, embracing that, uh, not making sure people don't feel like they need to be always on and giving them that space to really have that time to just recharge so they can be their best selves. Brandon, if I can take it back to the three key ingredients that you highlighted that we often find back in high-performing teams, one being psychological safety, two being having a clear vision, and three, there being a feedback culture. How would you say you make these work in times of pandemic, in times of hybrid work, each of these? Yeah, that is a great question, Tom. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know that I figured it out. Um, but what I can say is is what I've learned. You know, I think, um, you know, number one, um, I just think that the cadence in which you discuss certain things, so for example, the team vision, um, I think you need to be very intentional with making sure that you're always coming back to that. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned how my team, we have a quarterly offsite that we do as a team. Uh, with every offsite, we are always going to touch on our vision. I feel like before COVID, um, you know, it was maybe a once or twice a year thing. Um, but now I realize that really needs to be more frequent because when you don't see people in person, um, you know, you can't really maybe turn over and just, you know, uh, or turn to your neighbor uh, to the side and just and just give them feedback on something and really connect it. So I really find you need to be a little bit more intentional with how much you talk about things. Um, I try to communicate as much as I can in every team meeting and every offsite. I always try to bring things back to the vision. You know, I think in terms of real-time feedback, again, I go back to intention as well, where I just feel like you need to be really more deliberate about how much time you're spending gathering feedback, uh, particularly, again, as people are just dealing with their own personal issues, that becomes really, really critical. So in one-on-ones, there's always a tendency to just jump into uh, to-do items and to-do lists, right? I always try to start my one-on-ones with just checking in with seeing how people are doing, what's going on, is there anything that I can support with? Uh, and oftentimes what I found is we end up spending the entire meeting talking about that, you know, which is very important to me uh, as a leader. I think great leaders do that. Uh, they care about their people. So uh, to me, it just comes back to intention. It's, it's really keeping track of how often you're touching on these things, keeping a better pulse on how people are doing and making sure to follow up on those things when you have the opportunity. Fantastic. Thank you, Brandon. And I think that was my last question. So uh, I'm going to leave it at this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. It was a pleasure. 
hope that you enjoyed listening to this leadership conversation. And we would love to hear from you and continue the conversation with you. So please send any comments, questions, or suggestions for a next podcast to podcast at tpcleadership.com. This podcast was offered to you by TPC Leadership. And please note that the guests that we interview during this series share their own views. They do not talk on behalf of the organization that they're part of. For more podcasts, please visit the TPC website, tpcleadership.com forward slash insights. Thank you for listening.